You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Hi, I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. On today's episode, I speak with Madison Campbell, who is a young sexual assault advocate and technological innovator hoping to revolutionize the ways in which sexual assault is handled on a holistic scale. She is the founder and CEO of Leda Health. Leda Health is a company built for survivors by survivors. It seeks not only to revolutionize forensic evidence collection and testing with modern technology, but also to connect survivors with professionals and supportive communities to aid them in the recovery process. For sexual assault survivors, the restoration of autonomy and administration of care are of the utmost importance. They were founded in 2019 and since have raised $2.2 million, backed by folks like Alchemist, Comstorm Ventures, Gangels, and others. They are now live. They've launched in three states, California, Florida, and Texas, with 22 universities representing 650,000 students. On the episode, we discuss the role of the legal system in sexual assault, accountability outside of the legal system, setting boundaries with a co-founder in order to have a more healthy relationship, Madison's next step after having a new idea, evolving your business model, and dealing with controversy. I hope you'll enjoy this, although it is a tough subject. Please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Madison, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. So let's dive right in. I'm curious for your view, why does the legal system resolve so few cases of sexual assault? So a lot of different reasons. One, the majority of times um, in sexual assault convictions, when you finally do get a conviction, we can even look at like Weinstein, for instance, right? 90 plus women came forward to talk about the sexual assault harassment and rapes that Weinstein had against multiple victims. And it took two people, two of those stories to be credible enough to actually put Weinstein in jail. Look at Bill Cosby, for instance, who had 60 plus women, and now he's out on a mishap by the district attorneys. The criminal justice system was not meant to be very healthy towards sexual assault survivors, considering we don't often believe a sexual assault survivor on the basis of one incident. We often only believe them, not me, but the criminal justice system, believes them after multiple people have come forward with the same statement. And I think that that is you know, an overall trend of you know, basically the patriarchy, which has been able to show that oftentimes men do not believe women when they say that something has happened to them. You know, when I say, hey, like this person touched me or they said this, you know, oftentimes that is laughed at or, oh, it might be in your head or he didn't mean it that way. And with all of that non-believing, that's kind of caused a very, very low conviction rate. So what is the proper role of the legal system, either civil or criminal? So should I talk about that in relation to sexual assault or in general? Uh, let's start with sexual assault. Okay. So in, in civil cases, I think the goal of civil court is for an individual survivor who does not want to go through, you know, the very excruciating problematic, you know, case of actually going through the criminal justice system to be able to get some sort of justice. So when you are a sexual assault survivor, 
oftentimes you have to pay a lot of money to get yourself out of that situation. Same in domestic violence situations, whether it is therapy, quitting your job, moving to a different place, all of those costs start to add up. And so when people move forward with a civil, um, civil case, usually their goal is to remedy the amount of money that they had to pay in order, in order to basically get out of that situation. And so oftentimes survivors seek justice, quote unquote, um, through the civil, civil process because they've spent so much money and they deserve that money back. And the Office of Victim Services, quote unquote, says they will pay you for that, right? They will pay you for this, they'll pay you for that. But there is such a process. There's so many forms to fill out. And that can be really disempowering to sexual assault survivors. Now, a criminal court, I believe when we initially set up criminal courts for sexual assault, the goal was so anyone who committed sexual assault, you know, would be going away for a very long time and unable to hurt anyone. But that doesn't really end the cycle of abuse. Once we put somebody behind a prison wall, right? Yes, technically, they're unable to quote unquote hurt anybody. But is that actually ending the cycle of abuse? No, because we're not getting to the bottom of why they they actually caused the abuse in the first place. And is there a way to end that cycle? I do believe there is a way to end that cycle. Let's talk about alcoholism for one quick second. So if you drink too much alcohol, if you often brown out, black out, if you become not the greatest person when you're, when you're uh, drinking alcohol, there is a multi-step process for healing. There are community support. There are you know, different things that you can do to basically say, you know what, I have a problem. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to go you know, holistic healing community in order to get better and to be accountable for my actions. When someone sexually assaults another person, sexually harasses another person, et cetera, et cetera, we think in these kind of binaries, this black and white, right? Where you're evil or you're not evil. In fact, if we started thinking about it where everybody kind of exists on the gray, where not every single person is black or white, you're not completely evil or not evil, but everybody kind of has a moment of time where they do cause harm to somebody else. And so there's so many different things out there like alcoholism or shoplifting or whatever, which is causing harm to society, causing harm to other folks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we bring those people into therapy. We do not do the same when someone commits sexual harassment, assault, whatever. We immediately, quote unquote, cancel them, put them into the prison industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera, which does not end that cycle of harm. And so what I believe and what we're actually already doing um, at LIDA is doing transformative justice work. So we're working with folks that have committed sexual harm to rehabilitate them, to end the cycle of harm. Because when you look at the real reason that they are committing the act of sexual harm, it's mostly because they had harm committed to them as a young child. And so the reason why they are doing this is because it's all they know. Hurt people hurt people. That's a saying, right? That's oftentimes used in TJ spaces. And so to end the cycle of harm does not mean, quote unquote, canceling them, you know, taking their humanity away, putting them behind a prison, you know, wall. It actually means getting to the bottom of why they cause the harm to end that cycle so they don't cause that harm anymore. What does accountability look like in transformative justice? Great question. So accountability can look like talking to the person who you caused harm and saying, I acknowledge that I have caused harm and this is what I am doing to make it better, 
right? That is something, an exercise that we often do that even survivors really, really want to see. They want to see the person who caused harm to them to basically say, you know what? I am really sorry for what had happened. I am doing work on myself. I realize what I did was wrong. And that in itself is accountability. And how much of the future of Leda Health is about that kind of work versus what you're originally known for, the self-at-home evidence collection kits? I think, I think it's a cycle. So our, our goal is to end sexual assault, right? Which is a very lofty goal. Startups have lofty goals. How can you end sexual assault by not causing, by not, by not reducing what causes sexual assault in the first place, right? So that's the transformative justice work. So if we look at the major goals of the company, if our goal is to reduce sexual assault on college campuses, in the military, in employers, you know, even in high school, our goal should be not only to look at prevention efforts, you know, including education around consent and things like that, which is all well and good, but also talking about the fact that, you know, a normal person who sexually assaults somebody will sexually assault multiple people, not just one person. And so we have to end that cycle of harm as soon as we know one person has been been hurt. So I view it as a complete, um, you know, turnkey solution. And that's kind of our business model as well, is we're not just selling kits or selling testing or selling plan B or STD testing or TJ. We're bundling it all in one because we know that one cannot exist without the other. So if you buy a kit, you're getting all of the other services. Is that what you're saying? In a way, yes. And can you talk a little bit more about the kit for those that don't know it? And then I'd love to talk about some other things, but, but briefly, um, what is the kit and, and how do you use it? Yeah. So, uh, normally if you are sexually assaulted, you will, um, if you are strong enough, which most people are not strong enough, you will go to a, a hospital, an emergency room to get a sexual assault evidence collection kit done. Now that can be a four to eight hour long process. There's a small amount of sexual assault nurses that actually are trained to be able to do this work across America. And so your likelihood of being able to get that perfect service with the perfect person that understands, you know, how to collect evidence and how to be trauma informed is very low, right? Very low likelihood. So what we're doing is building, um, or we already build, I'm so used to saying building and I don't realize that we literally just launched um, like (laughs) two weeks ago. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm, you know, it's so used to like when you're in early stages of company, you're like, I'm building this and I'm building that. And you're like, wait, I've already built it. It's out there. It's happening. So, you know, we built a, a platform, technological and hardware, where by utilizing DoorDash in California, Texas, and Florida, you can get a kit delivered to you in under two hours um, to your front door. You take that kit in, you can collect evidence from the comfort of your own home in under 15 minutes. And we have a 24 seven care team of sexual assault nurse examiners, advocates, as well as forensic serologists that can actually be part of a care team to navigate you through the entire um, testing kit and all of you know the, the other things that you would have to do afterwards, whether that's plan B, STD testing, or even looking at mental health. In under two hours delivered to your door, that's amazing. I was really surprised when I learned how few of these SANE certified nurses there are in the country. It shocked me that uh, there isn't more access considering the numbers uh, that we hear about of sexual assault. I was blown away. 
It's, it's really bad. I was just on the phone with somebody down in Miami. We were, you know, doing a sales call. And the first thing I asked to this, and this is a person who's head of residence life at a university down in Miami. I said, do you know what a sexual assault nurse examiner is? Now they are, they are solely in control of taking students who in a dormitory might get sexually assaulted and trying to help them navigate resources. One, they didn't even know what a sexual assault nurse examiner was. Two, whenever I got onto the website for accreditation of sexual assault nurse examiners, I put in their geographic location and I had to give them the news that in all of Miami, there's only one sexual assault nurse examiner, one. And, you know, I was like, oh, what about Miami Springs? I see Miami Springs on here. They're like, that's not Miami. <laughs> and so in all of Miami, there is one sexual assault nurse examiner for a population of well, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals. And you know, Miami, Miami is not, you know, uh, a place where things don't happen. Things, really crazy things well, happen in Miami. It's a big city, like, like any big, big city. city. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big city. I was also really impressed when I learned that you were planning to incorporate timestamps to the blockchain, which to me gives a superior, far superior uh, chain of custody and authenticity to the evidence that you are gathering that would beat out anything, any legacy kit. Uh, is that yeah. something you've launched as well? We have indeed, except oh, um, Ethereum prices are extremely expensive. So we are thinking about moving off of Ethereum to another, um, something else on the blockchain, but yes, all the capabilities are now happening backed by Ethereum. So now we've touched on the products. I'm, I'd love to talk about your founder journey. When I was researching before this conversation, I wasn't quite sure if you considered yourself team first or idea first in, in building the company. Oh, so tell me the difference. So I mean, like you had your co-founder before you guys decided what you were building, right? Yeah, 100%. Because so you don't, did, you don't know. How you pick your co-founder? You know. <laughs> it's so funny thinking back to how I met Liesl, who was, I love her to death. Like I, I love her to death. She is, she is my rock. We make every decision together um, about basically everything in the company. But thinking back to how I decided for her to be co-founder, it wasn't, it wasn't something that came in like, oh my God, you're my co-founder type of thing. She was initially hired to be the chief technical officer and not a co-founder of the company. And at that time too, owned less than 15% of the company in terms of like earliest employee, you know, side by side, we were doing everything, but we were colleagues when we first met. So he was a consultant, essentially. I was doing consulting work before, before thinking of the idea of Lita. He was a consultant I had worked at, uh, worked with. He was incredibly technologically savvy. And one day I texted her and said, I have this idea. Tell me what you think. And she said, this will be great if it works. And so I asked her to help me build it. But basically I asked her to help me build it in terms of being like, you know, a, like the founding engineer, right? Not, not a co-founder, not equal, you know, not in ideation or anything like that. And so I had a very, very simple idea of what to do. And then she basically brought all the technology chops to actually accomplish it and come up with 10x more ideas that I would have never come up with. And it wasn't until around six to eight months into the company where we decided to go equal on equity and to be equal partners in this. 
but you know, it wasn't one of those things where it was like off the bat, I know I'm marrying you, you know, fell in love type of thing. It was a very steady, you know, kind of relationship where we had to trust each other. We had to understand what we both brought to the table. Um, and that was, that was different than I think a lot of founder journeys are. Well, it's certainly different than the stories you hear once they've been polished up and shortened uh, to be passed on. But I do think it's important for founders to understand that often things don't happen that simply. And getting to know someone first, as in your case, I don't think is as rare as you're saying. No, I, I mean, I, I often tell people too that are solo founders, if you can hire somebody to be like a chief technical, if you're not a technical person, bring on someone that is technical, get to know them because, you know, it is an incredibly long thing that you're asking them to be a part of, right? Five to seven to 10 plus years by your side. Do you want to make a decision for the rest of your life in a matter of like just meeting someone on one of these like co-founder dating websites, right? Like, no, like at least not in my opinion, maybe I'm very slow when it comes to relationships, but I feel like a lot of founders, they're like, oh my God, Y Combinator told me I shouldn't be a solo founder. I'm going to find the first person that is willing to take this job. They do. And then you see in like three to four years later that the relationship doesn't end up working out. Yeah. I think one of the biggest reasons that early stage companies fail is because of founder drama and founder issues, you know, that, or you're working on something that people don't want, which is a common YC advice, you know, build something people want. But I don't think enough focus, as you say, goes to building the right relationship with the right co-founder. No, because they make they make you feel bad about it. Like I remember my Y Combinator interview. I had I had told them that that Liesl only had fifteen percent of the company. I told them that in the interview. I gave them the reasons why that has happened, and they they said some very negative things. They're like well, I don't believe she's really into this then. You know, what What says that she won't go away? What, you know, what says this, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, years later, here we are. Well, I'm glad it's worked out. Uh, what do you do to build that relationship and keep it strong? So I think the best part of my relationship with Liesl is we really respect each other's boundaries. Or I should say she's made me accept her boundaries. You know, <laughs> Liesl doesn't work on weekends. She is, unless it is like an emergency, we have to do something, you know, anything like that. She's, she's Nepalese. She's an immigrant from Nepal, right? She, her culture is very like, you do not work on weekends, right? That is, and when I, I'm like, you know, as American as it comes, I'm like, no, like you work all the time. Like, you know, I'm American. I wake up, I work and all I do all day is work. And she takes breaks. Like she sets a lot of boundaries, takes breaks is very, to this day, I love Liesl. I don't actually know the name, the real name of her boyfriend. <laughs> I know what? what she calls her. I know what she calls her boyfriend, but like the nickname, but I actually do not know the full name of her boyfriend. We keep very like, um, we keep boundaries. Like I, I don't follow her on Instagram right? I let her have an Instagram that is private where she can have her private life and I can have my more like, I don't know, like more flamboyant life online. Like we're very different in that way. She does not like to be in the spotlight. She's very private, keeps to herself. Over the years, we have, you've gotten to know each other and have, you know, she's opened up to me about a lot of things, but I think what's so amazing about us is the fact that we do respect those boundaries. 
which I don't feel like a lot of founders do. Like I meet founders all the time, which are, you know, they're living with each other every single day and that can cause friction. I mean, romantic relationships cause friction when you live together and are with each other every single day. And I think we have healthy boundaries. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I don't hear a lot of people talking about that issue. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. I'm curious, when did you choose to be a founder? And this wasn't your first company. No. So I think, you know, you think, oh, I'm a founder because I have, I have, I'm starting this company, I'm raising investment money. But I think the notion of being a founder is just being a hustler, right? And so there were many points in my life where I didn't quote unquote like, found a company and raise venture capital or, you know, go through all of that. But I believe I was a founder of my own journey. Like I, I really wanted to be in entertainment, be an actress, a dancer, a singer. And in a way you were kind of like a solo founder, you know, who is constantly going out and selling yourself um, and getting rejected just like you do in sales or in investments all the time. And you get used to that. Right. And you become stronger and better and, and, amazing right so I think from a very early age I kind of had that founder mentality of you know taking myself pushing myself out there and not letting any rejections basically come in the way of what I wanted to accomplish and you had a business in Nigeria right yeah so that was that was the company that actually Liesl um, was consulting on so right out of college I became incredibly fascinated I was was dating a macroeconomic a macroeconomist who I'm still dating to this day and we would have these conversations around what is going to be the next India in terms of technological innovation and we would have discussions on Nigeria but more more you know more outwardly western africa in general and just the sheer amount of talent but the lack of infrastructure in actually being able to you know bring on new technology be able to hire new engineers, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I had this idea. I was like, what if we just found engineers and talent in Nigeria and got them jobs in America or in the UK where it's a better time zone? And that's what we ended up doing. But you know, the biggest learning from that, we were never venture backed. We were revenue positive, which was great. But what I learned is it is incredibly difficult to scale humans. And so, you know, we would have these big, large engineering teams in Nigeria, but then there would be like a political chaos happening in the country where, you know, half of the engineers can't get electricity because there's an election going on and they just, they just, you know, you can't get electricity anymore and there's shots being fired outside. You can't upload anything to the cloud because the internet is too slow, like all these different things, right? And that was what made me realize how can you scale a company massively to become a quote-unquote venture-backed company when you are dealing with something where the infrastructure is so low. I would, I would 100% put money towards the infrastructure in Nigeria, you know, in 10 years from now um, and build a company that way because I truly do believe in the talent over there. I've done some business in Kenya and worked a little bit with a company in Della that had a similar model in Lagos. 
and can be challenging, but there's a tremendous amount of energy and excitement about technology in both East and West Africa, you know, I think is only growing. So I think you're prescient there and we'll see, see where it goes next. And I think, I think it's amazing. And by the way, um, I did have like a partner in that company who's still running the company to this day in Nigeria, in Lagos. And to this day, we have about a six person team over in Lagos for Lida. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Now I want to go back to something you said about performing and what you can learn from theater, improv, uh, singing. How do these things apply to business? You mentioned like the power of getting over rejection, but what else? So I think the most valuable thing that any founder could ever do is take an improv class. I think before you do media training, before you, you know, do a webinar, do anything like that, if you are preparing to be a founder and raise venture capital, I think the best possible thing for you to do is to take an improv class. And I did a lot of improving and, and stuff like that when I was acting. And the reason why I think it is so amazing is because for conversations like this, I can constantly think of what to say. And when you're in an investment meeting, you have no idea what they will say to you. You have no idea. Sometimes people say crazy things, right? You know, I've, I've been asked, do I sleep in the same bed with Liesl? Like that was, that was asked to me, right? In a meeting. And so the craziest of things will happen in these meetings. And so being able to improv and being able to think on your toes really gives you the ability to navigate anything that could potentially happen to you. I'm a big fan of this book, Impro, and uh, the Improv Wisdom. Both these books are great books. Uh, Improv Wisdom really connects it to business. I don't know if you've read this one. I haven't, but that sounds good. It talks about exactly what you can learn from doing improv and apply it directly to business. I love improv. I, I love it. I think I think if you were also trying, if you had kids and you were trying to raise your kids to someday be entrepreneurs, I also think putting them in improv, you know, improv and economics and learning Excel. I think no one talks about how important (laughs) being able to use Excel is, but oh my God, it is so important. What do you use it for? Financial modeling, runway calculations, trying to determine if going into a new line of business is going to be revenue positive or not? Is it going to lead to success or not? I constantly, when I think of a new idea, whether it is like transformative justice or something else, the first thing that I do is go into Excel and try to map out what it means to actually do that. Is it going to be profitable and how do you grow that? I think it may surprise some people that a forward-facing visionary founder like yourself is turning to Excel as the first thing when you have an idea, that's really interesting. I mean, cause every idea is, I mean, there's a couple of things, right? For every idea that you have, you want to make sure that people want to use it in general, but you also want to make sure that it's actually profitable in a way, because you can, you can do, a, and I understand like Slack wasn't profitable for a long time. Uber still isn't profitable, et cetera, et cetera. We can go down that roadmap, but you know, when you're an early stage founder, and especially when you're a female founder, your goal has to be to do things that not only people want, but are also profitable, because you will be asked by investors more than your male colleague, why are you doing something versus them? 
What other advice would you have for aspiring founders? Good question. What advice do I have? So this is a piece of advice that I, I didn't learn until actually very recently when I was very early on. So like, say like month two of the company, I remember pitching to a very, very early and decently well-known fund. And they said some things which absolutely broke my heart, right? Not necessarily calling my idea like it was good or bad or anything, but just basically being like, I don't think this is going to work. Like, you know, all these different things that, um, that, that early stage investors sometimes say when they don't have conviction yet. And for about like two years up until recently, I, I had thought about that conversation every single day. I saw them on Twitter, in the news, investing in a friend of mine's company. And I was like, Oh, fuck them. Like, fuck them. They didn't believe in me, blah, 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 whatever. You know, all that kind of stuff. And then I became very good friends with, with uh, one of the partners at that fund who was not the partner that I had talked to, but another partner at the fund. And we talked about it. And I talked about how hurt I was by some of these messages. I got to know him, actually became really close friends with him and suddenly started to realize oh my God, I am so stupid for, for being so mad, seeing the fun success, seeing them invest in other founders and thinking about the conversation I had with them. So I think one of the worst things that you can do as a founder is to discount a relationship 100% when they don't believe you. Because just because they don't believe you now doesn't mean that the fund shouldn't succeed. And by the way, the fund will also invest in other visionary founders, even if it's not investing in you. And I think the one thing that you don't have perception of when you're an early stage founder, like month one to month three, is the fact that that relationship is going to be incredibly important by year two, year three, year four, year five. And so to basically discount them, keep them off investor updates, you know, say fuck you to them when you see their successes online is incredibly mean and not worthwhile. And that was something I didn't learn until recently. Interesting. Yeah. As an investor myself, I agonize over saying no. Once you've had a few conversations with someone, it can be very painful to say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make an investment. Like I, I chose not to invest here early on. I wish I had, but you know, we all make mistakes. And I think the way you deliver that message is so important to what you're saying. That isn't about I'm an investor and I quote unquote, no, it's like, well, this isn't a fit for me right now. Yeah. I wish you luck and I hope it works. And sometimes it can be so hard to be rejected. I've been on the founder side and sometimes the message is not at all delivered like that. Sometimes it's a much harder message. Yeah. And, and the rejection matters because I think there are ways of saying, you know what, I, I don't believe in this at the time. And there are ways of basically making a founder feel like everything they're doing is wrong, right? Like, why are you wasting your time on this? It's never going to work. Like, I, I don't think, like using the word never is ever good, right? Because the likelihood that something will never happen is very low. You know, one day, maybe not in our lifetime, you know, something will happen, you know? Uh, And I'm sure people, when Elon first was like, I'm going to Mars, they're going to be like, never going to happen in my lifetime. And now, you know, he's launching satellites, he's doing this, he's doing that. And so I think, I think as a thing to investors too, is to realize that, you know, never is a strong word 
but you know saying like hey I just I don't I don't feel comfortable with it at this time I think never can be very it can be very hurtful to hear that's good for investors to hear I'm curious how the mission of the company helped or hurt in your fundraising process so I think it made a lot of people uncomfortable um, and a lot of people discounted us and thought that we should have been a nonprofit. So many people, oh, you could be a nonprofit. I have a nonprofit. Some of my LPs have a nonprofit wing. They would love to invest in something like this. And I'm like, well, great. I would love, you know, non-dilutive funding. Please introduce me to them. Of course, I never got that introduction. So I think the mission where I thought it would be helpful was hurtful to a lot of investors who immediately discounted me to basically pat me on the back and say, oh, that's so cute of you. What a great mission. Oh, so thankful someone is doing this. Very nice work, Madison, but not taking me seriously as a company. And by the way, you know, when I was early on too, I didn't have the complete business model figured out. To this day, I have a new business model than the business model I would have told you months ago, right? Because we've added all these different things in. And to say that the business model that I'm at now is going to be it, the same business model for the next 10 years is probably wrong too, right? You're constantly changing and evolving. And so I think the mission is what drives me. It's what gets me up every single day of my life and says, I have to fight and I can't let this fail. I cannot let this fail. I am too vain to let this company fail because I know that not only will I be able to impact so many people, but I'm trying to make it up, you know, for, for what had, has happened to me, right? Like I, I was a sexual assault survivor and every single day when I do this work, I know that it's not only all these people on the line, but it's also my own personal story on the line. And so the mission is what personally drives me. I wish investors saw it is that, right? That is my momentum. That's what gets me out of the day. It gets me out of bed every day. Like, do you think founders who are doing like a random B2B, you know, SaaS company doing productivity have that motivation every single day, even when it's raining outside and you're, you're tired and you don't want to get up to get up because you know you could impact so many lives. Not many people can say that. So it's my driving motivation, but I think a lot of people saw the quote unquote mission as something that that was like, oh, it's so cute, right? So cute of you to do this, you know, type of thing. Is it the mission that allows you to push through the controversy that the company has faced? Yeah, 100%. But I, I think what helps me get through the controversy that the company has faced is not necessarily only the mission, but it's knowing that I get tons of messages every single day from survivors who say, if I would have had this, my life would have been completely different. And, and that's, I mean, that's quote unquote, your customer saying, you can't give up Madison because this would have completely changed my life. Wow. So the, the messages from potential customers saying that they really wanted or would have used it at the time, are you getting feedback from actual customers yet? You said you're live. Is that mean yeah. you're, you're having users now? Yeah. Yeah. And we're getting feedback from users. And I think it's a little bit difficult too to get the same sort of feedback that you get from survivors, right? If you are a, if you're working at a university, if you're working in the military, et cetera, et cetera, you're not going to be like, oh my God, you know, our life is so much better with all these sexual assaults that we have to deal with, right? It's, it's not the same feedback, 
But I, I think at the end of the day, when you are running kind of a more B2B2C company, we are seeing that feedback from the survivors um, who are utilizing the service, you know, in partnership um, or through, you know, one of the institutions that we're working with, they are appreciative of it. So at the end of the day, I think there's always going to be a difficulty in having like an administrator or anyone be like, oh my God, I'm so thankful for all of these sexual assaults. But I think the feedback that we get is, while I'm not thankful for this happening on my campus, at my institution, et cetera, I am happy that something is existing. And where I've seen actually um, a lot of good feedback is from legislators. So we launched in Florida in a couple of different universities and we're expanding that. And when I went with legislators, like the Senate minority leader um, of the Democratic Party down in Florida, he was like, oh my God, you know, this has to be everywhere. This is amazing. I met with multiple legislators that wanted to put bills into the legislation to basically say, hey, we, we, have, to, we have to put this in every institution. This has to be something. And so it's not only getting that positive feedback from survivors, that kind of mediocre feedback from your quote unquote customers, but also the legislators, which are dealing with constituents, which both are the, are the institutions and the survivors themselves that are helping push sales, actually. What numbers can you share about number of customers, distribution, employees, fundraising? So fundraising, we raised 2.2-ish million back in, um, I think we closed like December of last year. We are at, we will be at in total, I think we're adding even more colleges on. I think we're at 22 universities right now. As of August 26th, we're adding on an LA branch in a, I think a week from now. So I think by the end of September, we'll have around 37 to 40 colleges. And that is around 600, access to 650,000 students. Wow, that's a lot of people who have access. And we're, we're adding on, I think we're going to, so we're in California, Texas, and Florida right now. We're going to add on a couple more states. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to blitz scale this, as Reid Hoffman says. So we have figured out our model. We have figured out how to scale this. And our goal is to get into as many institutions, as many states, as humanly possible, as quickly as possible. Now, he talks about blitzscaling when there's strong network effects or winner-take-all dynamics. Do you think that that's the case here? I think we will be not only like the market creator for, for this space, but I, I do think there is a possibility of being a winner-take-all. And I, I want to be the winner. I mean, I am a little bit like competitive in that way, <laughs> yeah. but I, I, definitely, I definitely want to be the winner in providing these services because I've seen so many people try to try to do what we're doing and just can't get to scale because they haven't been able to figure out a business model that works. You know, there are plenty of things that could go wrong at any point. I acknowledge that, but I, I have a general understanding of how, how I would like to scale. And now that I've put it out into the universe in you know, the small way, right? I mean, small, but big way, right? 650,000 people, students are a lot of people at the end of the day. But now my goal is to just make that, you know, get to the 15 million student population as quickly as possible. What can you share about that business model? You're, you're selling the kits. Is that right? Oh, Miles, you're wrong. Okay. Okay. Tell me. So for $60 per student or per, per individual, um, we're also beginning outbound campaigns to employers as well. 
for $60 per, per individual, per seat, per year, you get access to turnkey solutions of sexual assault. So the entire suite of services. So that includes the kits, it includes testing, it includes a 24-7 care team, it includes STD testing, it includes Plan B, and it also includes transformative justice work. And so what we're basically doing is a turnkey solution for institutions so they can provide all the resources for anyone that is sexually assaulted without actually having to hire um, that individual on staff um, or having like an entire, an entire clinic or you know, an entire whatever, like all of that costs a lot of money. We're basically your outsourced sexual assault clinic being able to offer all of that on demand. We are no longer doing like one kid per individual person for one major reason. One, it is incredibly difficult to scale to 650,000 or 15 million kits simply because of the number of swabs that we have in each kit. So we have a partnership with DoorDash where we're using DoorDash Dash Marts to not only house the kits, but also STD testing and plan B so that you can get those kits delivered if you're around those universities in those geographic regions in under two hours. So for instance, when, you, when we open the LA um, branch, which we are be, will be doing in about a week or so, that then covers Caltech, covers UCLA, covers USC, multiple institutions with one central location to being able to disperse the on-demand resources. So that's basically how we scale. We are going to pick cities and, and individual places with multiple universities around a geographic location, be able to house um, all, the, all the resources at the geographical location, and then go and make the sale to the institutions in that region to have on-demand support. So it's wraparound support for when something goes wrong. When there's a sexual assault, you've got all these resources that come to bear, not, not yes. just evidence collection, but all the other things you mentioned. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was off base there. I'm curious if you have a favorite article or book you'd recommend. It could be about startups or it could be about sci-fi or whatever else. Yeah, I really like the 42 Laws of Power. <laughs> I really like it. It's written by Robert Greene, which by the way, not many people know this, but Robert Greene sat on the board for American Apparel. Oddly enough, um, same with uh, a couple other interesting people. He, it's very good. He mixes historical analysis with actual like business acumen. I really like it. I highly recommend reading anything that Robert Greene has written. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Great to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Yeah, take care. Bye. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website. 